Hello and welcome to Living in Exile, a podcast for those who are in the world but not of the world, and in the church but not of the church. My name, you know by now, AJ Farley, along with Amanda Hope Haley, we host this podcast together. And on today's episode of the Living in Exile podcast, we're going to be discussing Nehemiah chapter 4. And in Nehemiah 4, we see some tensions that are arising for Nehemiah as the people are rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Okay, here we go. We are uh, we're picking up in Nehemiah chapter 4. And uh, if you recall from our last time together, Nehemiah 3 was our discussion. Mm-hmm. And in that chapter, the people of Jerusalem have taken Nehemiah's instruction to heart. They are beginning the work of rebuilding the wall, and the significance of the rebuilding of the wall was not just a security thing, but it was also, uh, uh, there was culture and commerce and and uh, national identity and all that sort of stuff that seemed to be tied in together with this notion of this wall getting rebuilt. And the wall, uh, we said last time together, was not a wall that the way that you and I might think of just a, a, a brick wall, but it was, uh, the wall had... Um, had uh, rooms and houses actually built into it. It had gates that were that in, included conference areas and and storage areas and that sort of thing. And so this this was not just a wall. This was the city complex being rebuilt and and the vibrancy and energy that came as part of that. The people were taking responsibility for the work that was right in front of them, and they were working with their families and with their neighbors, and they were all going straight to work. And so, of course, we live in a fallen world, and as things often do, things don't stay well. They don't stay wonderful for long. And so that's where we're picking up today in Chapter 4. Uh Amanda, I'll let you sort of pick up the story for us there in chapter four. So you're all sunshine and lollipops, and I bring the doom and gloom this sunshine, morning. Sunshine, <laughs> lollipops. That's exactly right. When I do the summary, it's because I'm just very excited about how things were, and now I want you to rain down <laughs> vengeance upon us, if you would, please. Well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so back in chapter two, uh, we met three guys who were governors of areas around Jerusalem, uh, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they were not really excited about Nehemiah coming in because from their perspective, Nehemiah was maybe the strong arm of Persia coming to get entangled in their affairs and change the status quo. So um, Nehemiah was aware. Exactly. Nehemiah was aware of this. And when he organized everybody to start building the wall, he did it very quickly and very quietly, trying to stay under the radar of these three guys. Well, chapter four opens with Sam Balot figuring it all out. And he's kind of the ringleader of these enemies. And it says in verse one that he is enraged when he finds out about the progress of the rebuilding of the wall. So, you know, here's a man who, you know, previously tried to threaten Nehemiah, um, Maybe he thought that's all he needed to do, but now he realizes that utterly failed and that his worst imagining is coming true. This wall is going up, and he doesn't know what it means, and he's feeling very insecure, very threatened. Um, so um, he you know, does what any evil character would do, I suppose, and gets together with his... <laughs> Gathers his henchmen, That's rubs it. his hands together, has this sort of evil laugh as he does what he does. Absolutely. Pets his bald cat. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Now you have the picture of San Blatt. Go ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I won't throw any accents in. But he's, um, he goes One. first to. His... <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Thanks, Sorry. Thanks. He goes first to his right hand man, Tobiah, um, who is an Ammonite, and basically says to him, you know, hey, look, we've got a problem. But he does it in such a way that, well, see, his tactic in presenting this is to do it so that he is simultaneously making his men feel good about themselves and making the Jews feel bad about themselves. So he's, what are these pathetic Jews up to? He's calling them pathetic. You know, will they appoint themselves to put the wall back together? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question, and his answer in his mind is no. Would offering sacrifices help them? He says this, he's mocking their religion, he's mocking their focus on on God, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, will this occur in a day's time? Referring to the fact that Nehemiah, you know, in one night moved very quickly and very quietly trying to happen, make it happen under the radar. Do they mean to resurrect this charred rubble as a wall? The wall has become charred rubble as a result of, of his attack earlier at, at the end of Ezra. And so he does a great job of... I mean, of basically minimizing the impact that the Jews could have on their own city. Now, I don't think he actually believes any of this. I think he's genuinely fearful, genuinely insecure, and that's why he's trying to get all of these guys together. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the picture that comes to my mind of Sambalat in this in this telling, he's he's just a classic bully. Yeah. And the and the notion of him needing to build himself up, mm-hmm. uh, needing to encourage his henchmen, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the military force that he has with him, mm-hmm. at, and at the same time tearing down the, the, uh, the resolve of the Israelites, tearing down the Jews' desire to get to work or to continue the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just the classic kind of, uh, you, it's, it's not, I mean, we've talked about him sort of petting his bald cat. <laughs> I had the picture of just a playground bully. Mm-hmm. Just a kid, you know, making a big scene, making a mockery of the of the weakling who's who's doing their best to try to make the thing happen now. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah. So he makes these threats, and you know, he's got Tobiah's little buddy with him, and somehow the Jews and Nehemiah hear about these threats. I don't know if they're maybe yelling him from outside the city or mm-hmm. you know, how the people have heard exactly, but they find out somehow. And Nehemiah, being Nehemiah, he does not respond in kind. He doesn't take bait. I think we talked about about that a few episodes ago. Um, instead, he just prays. He doesn't address them. He just goes straight to God and says, basically, hey, you hear what they're doing? If they're threatening us, they're threatening you. We need you to take care of this. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That's all he does. And then in chapter 6 it says, We returned to building, focused and determined to work as one people. We stacked rock upon rock until one end of the wall met the other, and it grew to half of its original height. So at the end of chapter 6, they've been threatened. They didn't fall for it. They just kept going. The wall's about halfway finished. All right. Yeah. I'm sorry, you said chapter 6, you meant verse 6 there. I meant verse 6, yes, thank you, sorry. <laughs> not not to be all obnoxious, but... Oh, no, I'm glad you did, we want to be correct. Correct. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love Nehemiah's response. 
Uh, mm -hmm. And and how often do we, how often is our response not the right thing when we're mm -hmm. when we when we face this sort of we don't face persecution. I mean let's let's be honest. The stuff that we face is not persecution. We're basically we in America in the church in the 21st century the the stuff that we label persecution many times is just inconvenience more than anything else and so but even when we face in, the inconvenience as a church we don't often respond by going immediately to god and saying look here's what i've here's what i'm up against mm -hmm. this is the work that you've called me to do will you please see my plight and and uh, and and assist me in this work that you've called me to do mm -hmm. uh, the way that nehemiah does nehemiah responds so well to this outside threat that Sanballat represents, mm -hmm. and we should take instruction from that. I agree. I think it's, it, to me, it's very difficult to to understand when God maybe is calling me to do something, but it's easier to see a calling, I think, than to remember it when I'm in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, like, like, okay, for instance, the book. I firmly believe God called me to write the book. And so I sat down and I did it. Well, there were days that were really, really difficult that I was struggling <laughs> with the material and upset. And not not every time did I go to God in prayer. Not every time did I say, God, this is a problem for me. I know it's a problem for you, too, because you asked me to do this. Mm. I would lose that perspective as I got caught up in the minutia of the project. Well, and it does make you wonder sometimes, too, because we get called to do things we get we have a sense that god is leading us to do things but then those things aren't simple at all right. in fact yeah. there may be some of the most difficult things that we've ever done and and we get tempted in the middle of that to sometimes just say god what mm -hmm. what the hell i mean what are you doing what are you doing here exactly i mean that's no yeah. realistically i mean i i'm sorry i didn't mean to yeah. didn't mean shock you with language there but but certainly there are times when we just are facing difficult things and we know that we're doing – or at least we – as best we understand what God wants us to be doing, this is the thing that we ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. And yet we're facing you know, struggles with deadlines and opposition and this isn't working out the way that you think it is. And I know that there's just times when you – when I have felt, and I'm sure, Amanda, you felt this way trying to get the book done, and I'm sure the people that – that are listening to us have felt that God wanted them to do a certain thing, and yet, why is this so hard? Why mm -hmm. is it that we have to? Why is it that we have to face this thing? I think mm -hmm. about people struggling in their marriages. I think about folks wrestling with rebellious children. I think about um, difficulties at work. I think about all the stuff that people are going through, mm -hmm. as they might be listening to us right now, and they think that they're. I mean, all of us. Well, not all of us. I, I think we would like to always think that we're doing the thing that God wants us to be doing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you are facing opposition and, and frustration and difficulty in that thing doesn't mean that it's not what God wants you to do. Right. The most important and difficult things that have to be done are the things that God most wants to get accomplished for the sake of his kingdom in this world. Mm-hmm. But there it is. We're called to go through deep water sometimes. We're called to struggle in the ocean, so to speak. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. Do you have a question or a comment for the Living in Exile podcast? The best way to reach us is through our Facebook pages. You can find Amanda at facebook.com slash Amanda Hope Haley. 
You can find AJ at facebook.com slash AJ Farley Speaks. You can send us a message there, give us a comment, ask us a question, chastise us, criticize us, whatever you see fit to do. You can do it through our Facebook pages. Thanks. So. Well, so I guess that's where Nehemiah is right here, and you know, he his focus is where it's supposed to be. Uh, you can tell by what he said to God, though, that you know maybe he had some of those other thoughts that maybe he should take care of in himself, because you know he makes some suggestions, like you know, God, please take care of this, but why don't you do it this way? Plunder them, pillage them until they are captives in a foreign land. <laughs> Do not cover over their wickedness or erase the reality of their sin before you. They have mocked you right in front of you, of the men rebuilding the city for you. So you know he has a few suggestions. I like um, Nehemiah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fan. When I read Nehemiah, I read Nehemiah's suggestions, and I think that's the kind of guy I'd like to hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> You know, sometimes I, you know, we get frustrated and we get angry at situations or sad. And maybe it's me, maybe it's because I'm Southern, but sometimes I think I'm too polite to express that to God. Mm. And it's like, I feel like if I tell him, I'm so frustrated where I am, you know, that I'm, I'm being disrespectful or maybe even I'm sinning by admitting that to him. But he knows that I'm having those thoughts, and yeah. I find when I'm honest about those things, it opens up space for God to come in and you know really, really actually do something. Oh, yeah. um, so yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I kind of I respect Nehemiah, and I'm ha- happy to have this example of this in the Bible because this this looks pretty irreverent to me mm. for him to say these things like, God, yeah, you take care of it, but this is what I would do. You know, I yeah. find myself saying, you know, God, this is what I want. Now, if it's not your plan, okay, that's fine. But just so we understand each other, it's what I want. And there's a certain liberation in just kind of getting that off my chest, I guess. And Absolutely. not feeling like I'm keeping a secret from God. Um, you know, I'm closer to him that way when I'm 100% honest, even when it's ugly. Absolutely. And God, I think, invites that kind of thing. I don't mm-hmm. think God uh, – now, obviously, you know, I, my mind always goes to Job. And mm-hmm. and I think about the notion of uh, in the middle of Job, I think it's in chapter 13, there's a place where Job is saying, um, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, I will trust in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. And mm-hmm. I, I, that's that's mm-hmm. how it's quoted in the New American Standard. Mm-hmm. So you have this you have this sense of Job saying, I, you know, I'm I'm in the middle of this thing, and sure, and clearly Job had no idea what was going on or why it was happening the way that it was, and he had all these righteous, self righteous friends suggesting possible reasons and explanations for why he was facing what he was, and Job mm-hmm. was getting no relief anywhere. And I love that picture of him saying to God, I trust you, I hope in you, but I I need you to listen to me for a little bit. Mm -hmm. I need you to know how I feel about this. And I know that you do, but, you know, just the saying of it helps me feel better about, I don't know, I'm going to get all emotional about this for some reason, but (sighs) but that idea of God caring enough about us to let us vent sometimes. Yeah. I think about that like the intimacy of a husband and wife, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think about you and David knowing each other as well as you possibly can, and you being able to say things to your husband, ugly, 
hateful things to your husband that that you just need to say to somebody. Mm-hmm. And him being able to listen to that and and and, and you know handle it. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and my wife and I obviously the same way. That's that intimacy that we share. That gives us the ability to sometimes just be really ugly and really forthright in this way that's kind of a warts and all kind of way. Yeah. And so I see Nehemiah doing that here, and I really like Nehemiah for doing that. Mm-hmm. I, I think about you. I think about Jeremiah. The, I mean, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament uses language that it's really strong. It's almost like he's he in the New American Standard it says he deceit he he. He looks at God and he says, "You deceived me." And the language there is, at least my sense of it, is almost like you, almost like you took advantage of me. Yeah. Almost like you tricked. Yeah, you overwhelmed mm-hmm. me in this, in this, in this way that you ought not have done. Mm-hmm. If Nehemiah could, I mean, and that's the kind of that's the way that Nehemiah is addressing the Almighty, mm-hmm. the Eternal One. So. I I I love to see Nehemiah doing this. I love to see Jeremiah in the Old Testament doing that. I loved it when Job did it. Mm-hmm. Moses talks about wanting to see God face to face, and 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 basically God said, "You can't handle it, but I'll let you get as close as you <laughs> physically can." Yeah. So, yeah. and it, and it's not like God is surprised by Nehemiah's suggestions here. It's not like God says, "Oh my, Nehemiah, I had no idea you felt that way." Right. <laughs> And that's yeah. how, and that's when we come to him. That's that's our deal too. Mm-hmm. We don't surprise God when we when we ask for <laughs> judgment to be rained down on the people that we think of as enemies. That's just that's <laughs> that's the norm. Yeah, I mean it's it's contrary certainly to the New Testament and mm-hmm. Jesus and turn the other cheek and all of that. But loving um, our enemies, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, but you know, we have these thoughts. And we have to, I, I think I learned a lot about being honest. My husband and I tried to have kids for years, and we had multiple miscarriages, and um, I pushed it down for years and was in a lot of pain. And maybe after five years, I finally admitted to admitted to myself and to people around me and to God what was going on. And it wasn't until, you know, I actually said, I'm upset about this, and I don't understand, you know, why some some women who don't want kids can have them, why some people, you know, why with the health care law, everyone is so concerned about whether or not abortion will be covered, but, you know, nobody's talking about if infertility is going to be a part of it. We're more consumed with the death of children than we are with the life of children. And, um, you know, really just coming to that very raw place and getting it out there, that's what had yeah. to happen for me to have space in my heart for God to come in and begin healing. So, and Absolutely. yeah, he knew all of that stuff, of course, but I, I had to be honest. I had to be irreverent and I had to understand that, well, maybe I wasn't being irreverent. I had to be honest and I wasn't being disrespectful. I didn't approach God in a disrespectful way, no. um, but I associated, I think, anger and frustration with that and there's a with, difference yeah with, anger with and frustration sin. with being irreverent in some way yeah yeah and yeah. even sinful and I mean that's not true Ang- anger happens anger is an emotion it's the action that can be perpetuated from it hmm. where you get in trouble I think I remember years ago uh, uh, I had a, a friend of mine 
and we had a mutual acquaintance and our, and our mutual acquaintance experienced the, the death of a very close friend mm-hmm. and 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 he was going to speak at the funeral of this very close friend and he was having a difficult time obviously mm-hmm. sort of processing his own feelings in the thing yeah. and and I remember talking with that friend and uh, the, and the, the three of us were together and I remember talking with that friend and having him say you know God and I are just not really on speaking terms right now yeah and this is and this is a man that's a preacher of the gospel a man that I have mm-hmm. immense respect for he's since passed away but but I think in terms of of that man being able to just just raw emotion just being able to say, I'm not real happy with God's actions right now. I submit. I understand that I, you know, that there's more going on than I see. But with my limited sensibility and my limited understanding, I don't like this. Yeah. And and I think that's God invites that kind of thing. God wants to wants us to pull alongside Him and say, "Look, this is where I am. You need to know how I've." Or at least I want you to know how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. And one of the most precious promises that we have in in all of Scripture is that God says He hears us. Because mm-hmm. how many people are not really listening to us in our lives? Yeah. How many people are not really paying much attention to the things that we say? We're such a distracted people. Mm-hmm. So, sure. okay. Well, uh, we. <laughs> Not off the rails, but certainly not the direction we were planning on going there with Nehemiah. No. All right. But a good one. A good yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So so Nehemiah prays and he prays for sort of vindictive actions against <laughs> the against those that he, that are trying to derail this work. Uh, mm-hmm. What happens next? Um, well, the the people go back to work is the immediately what happens, and they get the wall about halfway done before they encounter problem number two. And this time it's not just Sambalot and Tobiah, but he's got a few more cohorts with him. Um, you have Sambalot, Tobiah, some Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, um, which that would be the region between between the Mediterranean and Jerusalem where the Philistines uh, used to this. live. Philistine um, cities. It is so they with with the addition of the Ashdodites, they Jerusalem is literally surrounded 100% by people who are upset with them building this wall. Um, <laughs> so Sambalot did a really good job of of rallying his troops yeah. and getting them all there. So um, let's see. Uh, so the folks they, in Israel. I'm sorry. Go mm-hmm. ahead. No, go no, go for it. Well, just the that notion of the the thing being completely surrounded. Mm-hmm. If you remember from chapter three, we said that people were doing the work that was right in front of them. Right. And so they you know they got to work on the task that that, that was that was right where they were, right where they lived. It was their mm-hmm. responsibility to work on the wall that was right in front of them. And mm-hmm. so just on the other side of where you were in Jerusalem, regardless of where you were, there mm-hmm. was the threat. There yes. were the people that you were you were building to keep those people out, and you wanted to get this thing done as quickly as possible because you could see them in your field of vision as you were mm-hmm. working. And this was really a brilliant thing for Sandalot to do. He really has a 100% psychological attack planned um, yeah, yeah. because every person to a man is looking at their enemy. And what Sandalot does is he basically 
starts a rumor, if you will, and gets all of the people who are surrounding the city of Jerusalem talking about how it is impossible that the that there are enough of these people to complete building the wall. Mm-hmm. And that starts to get into people's heads to a man yeah. until finally um, you hear the people saying to each other in the city, our builders have grown too weary to continue. Look at all this waste and rubble strewn about the ground. We are not able to rebuild the wall on this foundation. Um, so, I mean, it worked. Sambalot got the people to, at that time, stop what they were doing and question and um, start to think about leaving. Boy. Well, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, it was just the power of discouragement. Oh, I yeah. Mean, for folks to... It, it, I mean, it wasn't all that long ago in Chapter 3. We had everybody going to work, and they had mm-hmm. they had a mind to do it. They were mm-hmm. unified in their actions, and now they're facing opposition, and suddenly it's not just a couple of folks. It's like yeah. everybody around the city is going, oh, just never mind. Everybody mm-hmm. just... It, you just see the thing falling away as yeah. quickly as it is as it developed. Sambalot was able, I think, to change their perspective. Nehemiah had everybody focused on what was important to them and what their specific task was at hand, and Sambalot and uh, the other men were able to get everyone to focus on the magnitude of the project. And it's one of those, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? They went from focusing on the bite to focusing on the elephant. And when you I mean, when you think about the enormity of a project, sure, it seems crushing as opposed to what your little part of it will be. So um, they sow discouragement and then take it one step farther and say, hey, you know, we're going to attack, but we're only going to target the people who are actively working on the wall. And so people start to hear that and think, well, okay, I'm just going to go home. I don't need to be the. I don't, I don't need, need to, to be, be that guy. That's I don't need right. To be the person doing that work. Let so and so take care of it. It's. <laughs> I mean, it, he really did an excellent job of, of psychological warfare. That's that's what I consider this to be. And you, in the picture in mind of somebody, you know, a bricklayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the at the at the top of the tower, the guy who is receiving the brick and placing it, and somebody's tossing the brick up to him. Mm-hmm. That guy who's doing the work, he's also going to be the most vulnerable man. Mm-hmm. He's up there, right on the top, and he's just a sitting target for someone who who's a marksman with an arrow just to take him out. You're and right. So nobody, nobody wants to be the guy up on top of the wall then, because True. he's he's the he's the one. He's the one who's most intent on the work that he's doing and least prepared to defend himself mm-hmm. and most vulnerable in that regard. So, Yeah, plus if you remember from the last chapter, there were people not just from Jerusalem doing this, but from like the, the surrounding, um, I hesitate to say cities, more like the surrounding villages yeah, that yeah. came in to help. And so those people are coming into the city working during the day and going back home at night. Well, yeah. their wives and children are at home. They're the ones who are you know close the closest to these armies that are starting to rally outside Jerusalem. They're the ones really hearing the rumors. And so, you know, my husband comes home at night and I've been hearing through the grapevine that only those building the wall are going to be attacked. I'm going to say, hey, honey, stay home sick tomorrow. Yeah, let's call in. You need a personal day tomorrow. Yeah, so, I mean, even the people who weren't involved in the building themselves, you know, the, the rumors, it mm. spread not just to the city, but to all the outlying areas so right. that... 
people who were God's children who were initially all for this are now encouraging the builders to turn away out of fear. So, I mean, gossip in the tongue is very, very powerful. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let's look at Nehemiah's response then. How does he he handle this? Well, he... um, Kind of gets everybody together in one group. Okay, so there's Nehemiah. Yeah, basically, basically, yeah. Up until this point, everybody's been whistling while they work at their little section of the wall. All the problems come together, and Nehemiah decides, you know what? Everybody who's here needs to see not just the magnitude of the project as a whole, but our magnitude, how many of us there actually are working on this and how it actually is possible. So he gets everyone together so that you can, you know, look in the eyes of the hundreds of other people who are doing the same thing you do and draw confidence from that. He basically does the exact opposite of what Sanballat did. And so he gets them together and, you know, tells them to take their swords, their spears, their bows. These are weapons that they used for hunting. These are not military grade weapons but you know he's saying look whatever you got keep it on you and keep up with the work and you know we're, we're, we're just going to forge ahead and everybody feels confident doing this knowing two things that they aren't alone in this that they have their neighbors and of course that they are working for God. They may not be well armed, but they know that they don't have to be. Because mm-hmm. Nehemiah, you know, several verses before, prayed to God, laid this in his hands, and God can take care of it. It's his problem. It's not their problem. I love that. The direct quote from Nehemiah uh, at chapter four, fourteen: Do not be afraid of these people. This is Nehemiah addressing the congregation. Don't be afraid of these people. Instead, remember the eternal, our great and awesome Lord. Fight for your people, your sisters and your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. I, I just that strikes me as one of those like brave heart kind of. Uh, uh, Lord of the Rings with the uh, Aragorn riding up and down and clanging, <laughs> clanging with folks. I mean, I just th- that that strikes me as the thing that will that will uh, that will instill courage in the heart of these men. Mm-hmm. We're all in this thing together. We're all on the same side, and we have a common enemy. And we're going to pull not just for your family, not just for for you know those in your immediate proximity or for yourself but for the good of our people today's the day today's the day we're going to we're going to continue the work and we're going to be prepared to fight if we're called upon to do so exactly and that if i think is very very important yeah. Um, yeah. because of, of what happens and ultimately they don't have to I think they responded the way god wanted them to they continued um, and he took care of them Um, You go to the next verse, and it says, Our enemies had intended to defeat us through surprise, but they learned we were aware of their plan and ready for their attack. The true God had frustrated them. And so we went back to work on the wall at our assigned places. And that's it. That's pretty much the end of the struggle right there. Isn't that interesting? frustrated them. What on earth does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> it's like somehow God t- tangled those folks up in a mm-hmm. way that only God does, and uh, only God does. And God decided to not share that with us in this right. in the story here. But that's right. I almost get a bit of a I, I don't know why, but like image of the Godfather kind of leaps into my mind of you know 
you've come to me. I'm taking care of things. You just need to know it's all okay. You mm-hmm. know? And he did. Mm-hmm. He took care of them. We yep. don't know what, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Sam Balot and, <laughs> and all of his folks woke up with horses' heads in their bed or something like that. Exactly. I don't know exactly what it was, <laughs> well, let's pick up then. We've got, we've got uh, Nehemiah. Uh, mm-hmm. encouraging the folks to get back to work. They've got a plan formulated now. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving forward, how is it that the Israelites, or how is it that the Jews did the work that they did moving forward? They Well, they continued, um, but they continued with the knowledge that something like this could happen again. Mm-hmm. And so Nehemiah changed the status quo a little bit. Um, so the folks, are, they're taking precautions. They've got these non-military style weapons that are with them there right. and, then, and then also the well I guess the idea of, of um, working in shifts and that kind of thing mm-hmm yes so um, it, you know, they, yeah they keep they keep their weapons with them um, and then Nehemiah probably the biggest thing that he does is encourage everyone who's working on the wall to stay in Jerusalem at night and this is productive reasons of course, it keeps everyone together for protection and keeps them armed in case there's an attack. Right. Uh, it's efficient. People aren't traveling between home and work. They can probably work longer hours. But then okay. it's also keeping these people from going home and talking to their wives and children who maybe have their ears to the ground and, and hearing more of that gossip. So um, that, hearing, yeah. Well, I was just going to ask, does that mean that the wives and children remained outside the city or did they come inside the city with the with the workers? I'm, I'm thinking they stayed outside the city for the most part. Um, okay. There is reference in Chapter 3 um, to one group of women, um, somebody's daughters, um, Shalom's daughters in Chapter 3, verse 12. It says that they're mentioned. But, I mean, it was it was probably just the men. I think that's okay. reasonable to assume. Yeah, also mm-hmm. reasonable to assume they would have left some sort of a contingency behind to protect those folks as well, but it's not stated sure. in the text. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, okay. Very good point. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, I'm sorry. Are we ready to move on? Are we ready to look at the good news yet, or is um, there more of a story we need to tell? I would say the only other thing uh, that we can add to that is, you know, again, Nehemiah's attitude as he makes these changes. You know, he's telling these guys, you know, not only are you carrying bricks, but you're carrying heavy weapons now. You're going to be working longer hours. You can't go see your family. But he does the exact same thing. Um, right. He doesn't ask anybody to do anything that he's not doing himself. And mm-hmm. I think that's the mark of a really a, a caring and strong and easily followable leader, if followable is a word. <laughs> we just made it one. Yeah, it's like a, it? It's a uh-huh. hyphenated word. Follow. Follow-able. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I mean, we've talked... We've sort of touched on this, but I guess it's good to—it's good for it to be said here. Nehemiah is just setting a wonderful example through all of this process for us. Yeah. It just seems like from—I mean, we're only four chapters into the text that is attributed to Nehemiah, and and it, or that Nehemiah has written, and we're and he's not. He's not writing this way to sound his own horn, Mm-mm. but my word, he just seems like he plays things exactly the right way, even down to the—I mean—to the way that he prays. That seems to have moved me so much. Mm-hmm. Everything that Nehemiah has done to this point has just been excellent. 
It's like he he reads the he reads the situation very well, and he takes exactly the right steps to fix the thing mm-hmm. uh, or to move along. Uh, I'm just I'm in. I, plus, he's just somebody I'd love to hang out with. Based on the way that he prays, <laughs> I'd just li- I'd love to get a beer with Nehemiah. He'd be the guy that I would like to just hang out with a little bit. Yeah, I think he's. I, I love his honesty. I love his honesty, and I mean, it's it's cool that a leader can be honest. I think so often politics and everything get trapped up in the leader's mind, and I mean, we see it. I mean, we see it in our American politics all the time. People, leaders, thinking they know better and not sharing the whole truth with the yeah. people or with those around them because they think they know better. And I, you know, would say that's not always the case. And he definitely did the right thing in laying it out to God. He unburdened himself to make himself a better leader. Yeah. Well, and I see, I see perception versus reality. And mm-hmm. so often perception, we spin things a certain way so that our, so that we're perceived to be maybe more capable or more, uh, more with it than we actually are. Yeah. And and Nehemiah, to a certain extent, Nehemiah does that. He doesn't, you know, he he prays to God in this very frank and <laughs> I mean the word that we've that we've used is vindictive or mm-hmm. uh, you know that kind of an idea. He prays to God in this very frank way, but mm-hmm. then when he turns to speak to the people, he's he's you know look, we're not worried about the strength of our enemies. We're worried about. Uh, we're very much aware of the power of our God mm-hmm. and the work that we're doing and the importance of this work. So, mm-hmm. so I, know, I just I, I love I love the way that Nehemiah has played this thing and, mm-hmm. and the way that he the, the way that he seems to know exactly the right action to take as it as as each new challenge presents itself. So, I also love the balance he strikes between trusting God and being men of action at the same yeah, time. Getting to I mean, work. Obviously, getting to work on the wall, but then also, you know, remaining armed and coming up with, you know, an attack plan, you know. If we get attacked, this is what we're going to do. Yes, God will fight for us, but we still need to be ready. Yeah, absolutely Um, right. So there's there's a great balance there. Yeah, a contingency plan always in place. I understand that God wants this to happen. I'm going to work this way. But Mm -hmm. if for some reason God lets this other thing that's unforeseen happen, Mm -hmm. i got to have another plan in place just in case. Absolutely. Or just in case that other plan is a part of God's plan even. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Amanda, what's the good news for the exile? How can people apply what we're talking about today to their daily lives? I would say the good news is you can be 100% honest with God. Mm. And even when it's when it hurts and it feels it feels irreverent, um, you know God's He knows what's going on in your heart anyway. And so mm. be open, be honest with Him, and then He'll be able to to help you better. Absolutely, absolutely. The the way that Nehemiah again, uh, I'm just I'm quite enamored with Nehemiah. I seem to have a little <laughs> man crush on him, but but I love that picture of him. Of him praying to God in this just very frank way, mm-hmm. and you know, of course, we talked about the other pictures or uh, the other pictures uh, from the Old Testament, the the images that we have of Job and Jeremiah and Moses, mm-hmm. maybe Moses to a lesser extent, but but certainly, folks speaking to God in a way, not being not being disrespectful, not being irreverent, mm-hmm. uh, but approaching God with concerns, approaching God with, 
here's where I am. And I, I think we can't really, uh, I think we can't really uh, keep those parts of ourselves hidden from God. Mm, of course I not. I think it's it's not it not 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 only because we obviously can't do that, but it's not good for us to to pretend that everything's okay when everything's not. That's it's right. not good for us to pretend that we're doing just fine. Mm-hmm. When clearly we're not and you know, and things need to get fixed. So. Yeah. And I can tell you from experience that that breaking point will come in about the worst possible time to yeah, let right. things fester <laughs> and you push feelings down and all of that. Law will kick in. That's right. That's yeah. right. Your deepest, darkest secrets will go up in a flame of glory. <laughs> uh, uh. So, I'm trying okay, to think what maybe reaching there. Huh? Yeah. What are our what are your deepest, darkest secrets, Amanda? Why don't you just go ahead and share them with uh, us now? <laughs> I won't do that, but I, <laughs> what I am thinking of when I say that is just my husband and I for years had kept our infertility stuff a complete secret. And one Sunday morning um, um, at the end of our little life group meeting, my husband walked out of the room, I think, to clean uh, to clean up communion or something like that for another service. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys who was in there who I was working on a project with very innocently asked me about the progress of that project. Why do I have trouble saying that? Progress of the project. Progress and, of the uh, project. Yes. And um, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I literally collapsed in the floor and cried like, heinous, ugly tears, you know, like the kind where my entire body was red and I couldn't breathe from heaving and all of that. And um, I did that right in front of my life group, the life group I was supposed to be leading. (laughs) (laughs) I am your leader. And everyone was in shock, Mm. especially the poor guy (laughs) who had asked that question. I mean, I'm not sure the colors return to his face to this day. (laughs) All I said was, how's it going? Yeah, literally. Literally, and I just <laughs> lost it. And um, but it was really it it was it was of course embarrassing, but God totally met me there. And you know, two two of the women in the group came and they physically picked me up under my shoulders, you know, to where I was kind of standing again. And um, and you know, I told them what had been going on and they started sharing similar situations and I mean God literally met me right there on the floor in my place of mourning and um, and it that was that was the turning point in you know the last few years of my life so at that point I could start being honest with other people I could start being honest with God myself my husband my parents didn't even know what was going on and yeah um, I'm trying to pretend like everything's okay take your mask off and be who you are warts and all exactly on the ground crying in front of everybody in the life group that's right yeah I mean that's and um, we don't really have those sorts of unscripted human moments these days. Mm-hmm. We do we do everything that we can to avoid those types of moments these days because we do we we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't mm-hmm. want to be, you know, less than our best. Yeah. We comb through our Facebook pictures to make sure that any picture that remains up on Facebook only shows us in our best possible light. And we, and we eliminate those things and we don't want anything that doesn't present us as the completely pulled together, entirely 
uh, appropriate, always knowing the right thing to say kind of person. Mm-hmm. And it's and sometimes it takes us going through that kind of stuff where we're just blubbering idiots. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that's what happened to you that morning. That's not only talking about myself, but <laughs> oh, it totally was, totally <laughs> was. <laughs> but but sometimes we have to get there to where we can finally just say, okay, let's. Um, today's apparently the day for me to swear, but uh, I remember. Uh, I've, I've I've heard Rob Bell talk about uh, recently talk about going to twelve step meetings back in the day, and when he was first starting his church, people would talk to him and say, "You just really need to go to a to a twelve step meeting and see what the vibe is like in those places. You don't have to be a participant. You can just you know, my name's Rob and I pass." And he said that he saw God at work in those places because they were completely bullshit free zones. Those are the places where people just – where there's no pretense anymore, where there's no – it's it's just let's just be who we are, yeah. warts and all, and let's just let stuff out there mm-hmm. and, and let stuff be out there. And let's be okay with people not thinking that we are some glorified version of ourselves rather than the actual human people that we are. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, it's mm. that's correct. Yeah. So anyway, so Nehemiah, he does that well, <laughs> and I like that about him. Absolutely, and that's that's what's happy. The stuff that's the <laughs> the happy news. Happy news! Yay! Happy, 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 happy. Yeah. All right. Well, tell us what's going on next time, Amanda. Next time we're gonna. We're going to encounter even more conflict, and this time, of course, it's from within the Jewish community. Um, so poor Nehemiah, he gets it from without. He's now going to get it from within. Um, yeah, that that seems to be the pattern. Ezra experienced something very, very similar. Yeah. So we're going to so, take a look at the um, the struggles within the Jewish community at that time. All right. So next time we're together, we have <laughs> Nehemiah's struggle with his brothers. Yes. To look forward to. That's right. All right. You can find Amanda Hope Haley at her website, amandahopehaley.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash amandahopehaley. You can find A.J. Farley at his blog, wornoutbibles.blogspot.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Speaks. Unless otherwise noted, scripture quotations are taken from The Voice. Copyright 2008 and 2009, Ecclesia Bible Society. Thanks for listening.